Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop cult podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne writers Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, Zara. Yo. Coming up on today's show, we have some issues with the Instagram activity of this year's Bachelor, Lockie Gilbert. Plus, how do we feel about JK Rowling's books being removed from bookstore shelves in the wake of her transphobic statements? And then a deep dive on model M. Ratajkowski's viral essay in New York Magazine's The Cut This Week and an exploration of women's bodies, the photographs of those bodies, and who actually owns them. But first, my beloved Zara McDonald, tell me, how was your week? I just realised as you started doing the intro that I got a bit nervous because I realised there was just fucking (laughs) nothing to say about my week. I should have prepped something, but I actually don't think, even if I spent a couple of hours prepping, I couldn't have come up with anything. I've done nothing. I'm not doing anything. No one in Melbourne is. Week 7,000 of lockdown and I'm pretty sure we are the bane of the entire country's existence. So instead of complaining about it, How about we just skip this part and you just tell me your recommendation? (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to go straight into it because I do have a recommendation (laughs) this week. It is one that I've been meaning to recommend for a couple of weeks now, Mish, but when you listen to this episode, finally reminded me that I should tell the people that listen to the podcast. I listened to Ryan Shelton on the Imperfects podcast, which is the podcast by Hugh Van Kylenberg, who we've had on this podcast. He's from the Resilience Project. Props to my younger brother, actually. He'll be so annoyed that I'm recommending this because (laughs) he has told me to listen to this episode for about six months I think Mm. and every so often kept messaging me being like did you listen to it did you listen to it and I've never really respected his recommendations very much like you don't respect mine Michelle (laughs) you know those people you're like nice in theory probably not going to spend my time doing it but this was one of the most wonderful conversations I've heard on a podcast for those who don't know who Ryan Shelton is I mean I think you probably do. You've just forgotten. Ryan Shelton (laughs) is one of the country's most well-known comedians. He's very much in the realm of the Hamish and Andy 
crew. I think mm. he does co-own the production company that they run together. He used to be on Rove, has been on heaps of stuff. And he speaks very uh, candidly with Hugh about getting to a point in his life about a year or so ago of just feeling incredibly unfulfilled. And it's not mm. the most sort of earth-shattering emotion that he's talking about, which is why I think, Mish, it's such a beautiful conversation because it's not – real trauma that he's talking about it's nothing really extreme it's just sort of like this deep-seated feeling that he's feeling unfulfilled and he needs to find meaning again I feel like it was such raw magical transformative honesty in that episode that I have not really heard any other comedian in particular share before publicly if you want a taste test of what is coming before you dive in Ryan does talk about being incredibly jealous of his best friend, Hamish Blake, for a certain amount of time. And I feel like jealousy is something we can all relate to. It is so human and yet hardly anyone talks about it. And I feel like it's incredibly freeing to hear someone address those ugly inner emotions and kind of wriggle out of them. Yeah, I agree with that because I think jealousy has to be one of the ugliest human emotions, but it's also one of the most innate. Like I don't think Mm. that there is anyone listening to this who hasn't felt extreme jealousy about certain things in the past. So it's a really good chat. I would also recommend it to any man in your life as well. Just all the men. To the 2.7% of men we know are listening, listen, but also to any woman who's listening who thinks a man could get something out of it. I really recommend it. I think to, to hear two men speak so candidly and in such a raw way about their emotions is so incredibly helpful and definitely something we don't hear about enough. So we will put a link to that one in our show notes. Mish, how was your week? Magnificent recommendation. That was probably the high point of my week. I feel like, again, (laughs) I'm the same as you. I have resorted when I'm talking to my friends and my family to asking the same conversation starter, which is what is the high point and the low point of your week this week. And to be honest, listening to that podcast episode was the absolute highlight of my week. So I'm the same as you. I don't have much to report on but it is a brilliant fucking episode and you guys need to go listen to it straight into my recommendation this is another one that you have also watched zara everyone needs to go watch the kathy freeman documentary currently available on iview it is called freeman it is in honor of the fact that kathy freeman's gold medal olympic run at the sydney olympics was officially 20 years ago this week and As much as I'm not a huge fan of the entire production of the documentary, I feel like the directors took a little bit too much artistic license (laughs) with some of the dramatic smoke machines and like slow-mo shots that they resorted to. I think if this was stripped back, it would be one of my favorite documentaries. And I feel like Kathy Freeman's involvement with this and the old clips that you get to watch where like Bruce McAvaney is commentating the race. It's just such good viewing and I really, really loved it. It is so nostalgic, isn't it? Like it is the kind of race that I knew was big at the time because I think it's the thing that everybody has asked you since, like where were you when Kathy Freeman ran? And I was actually in the car with my whole family driving home from the Sydney Olympics because we'd driven up to to go and watch them. And I didn't really grasp the gravity of why it was so important. And I think a lot of people our age would feel the same, knowing that it was really a huge moment in Australian sport, but not quite understanding the gravity. But watching this was really, really lovely. Gosh, I wish it was, you know, more episodes. Like I wish it was like a three or four part series. I really think there was so much more to unpack. But I do back this recommendation if anyone hasn't seen it. Make sure you watch it straight away. Thank you for that endorsement. Straight onto our hotline, Zara. We have three bangers this week. Our first hotline message is from Bill. Hi, Mission Zara. This is Bill from Portland, Oregon. 
You may have uh, heard about us on the news recently for all the wildfires going on. Half the county in which I grew up in is under evacuation notice. And I just want to say that during these times, we've greatly enjoyed your podcast and uh, allows us a little bit of a respite from things kind of going on. So thank you for providing joy, even in the darkest of times. Take care. I mean, I wonder if the listeners are getting sick of us pushing the 2.7% down their throats, but I am so more than happy to hear from more men, particularly men that don't even live in the country. Bill, thank you so much for getting in touch. It sounds like it's been a really harrowing time over in Oregon Mm. because of all those wildfires. So our thoughts are with you. And thank you so much for listening. Mish, we also have Chelsea on the line today. Hi, Zara and Michelle. I just wanted to hop on here and talk just about your book. Couldn't have come at a better time for me. Unfortunately, over the weekend, I had my first ever panic attack and I haven't been feeling great this week. So getting to go to the park and sit and read your book has really helped me be present and then know that it's all going to be okay. And this is just one, one little step in the process and that, you know, there'll be a brighter day soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Oh, Chelsea, my heart. First of all, I think anyone who is listening who has panic attack disorder or an anxiety disorder will relate to that feeling of your first ever panic attack. And it's quite harrowing and quite confronting to live through it. Often you feel like you're going to die or you're having a heart attack. So Chelsea, I'm so sorry that happened to you this week. But also I am so incredibly chuffed to hear that you're enjoying the space between. It has been That's actually, to be honest, looking back on my week, that has been the highlight beyond listening to that Ryan Shelton episode. Apologies, Ryan Shelton and Hugh Van Kylenberg, if you're (laughs) listening. The highlight of my week has been seeing shameless listeners talk about how much they're enjoying the book or share their favorite essay with us. It is just bringing me an immense amount of joy right now. Yeah, me too. And I think there is something really mindful about being able to immerse yourself in a book. I think it's just about the only thing I can do where I can concentrate on it fully. Like I think when we live Mm. in a world where there's so much chaos around us and so much technology reading is still kind of the only thing that keeps my mind in the one place so I so relate to Chelsea feeling Mm. present in the moment when she was reading a book and our last one Mish you've picked this one out because we were inundated with hotline (sighs) messages this week this one is from Ebony Hello, Michelle and Zara. I love the show so, so much and have never called in before but could not help myself after listening to your guys' segment talking about Zac Efron's new girlfriend. I was laughing so hard. And I also want to go into bat for Michelle, Zara, because you said you don't know what she's talking about. But I could not resonate more with going on a family holiday, hanging back from the crowd, trying to be a loner type and be really mysterious and just be so consumed by how you're possibly being perceived by people in that town and how you just want to be so desirable and almost like living a movie and it reminded me of a meme that I saw when you listen to a sad move a sad song in the car and you look out the window like you're in the film clip like that's what it was like to me I was pretending I was in a movie or a film clip and I just thought that I was so cool and mysterious and desirable and yeah just could not relate more so Michelle I totally get you love the podcast girls and yeah I can't wait to hear more Ebony God bless you and God bless every shameless listener who leapt, leapt to my defense over this Zac Efron segment because I swear to God, there is something there where the vast majority of women look back on their teenage years and know that they were that teenager who saw themselves destined to meet a celebrity like the Lizzie McGuire movie. 
I have to say, I don't think you explained this phenomenon very well last <laughs> last week. I think Ebony explained it so much better. I don't. I definitely found myself on holidays with my family, distancing myself from my family and trying to act like I wasn't what? part of them. But you, that is what I was saying. No, you were saying because you thought you wanted to meet a celebrity or someone yeah, important. Yeah, because I thought because I thought like the Lizzie McGuire movie that I would meet like a world famous singer and they no, would discover No, not the same me. thing. I'm just thinking that generally is- pushing away from the family and just kind <laughs> of like trying to be too cool for the whole thing, like being embarrassed that you're on a family holiday even though you're 14 and you can't legally do anything alone anyway. But your argument that I didn't explain it well enough falls down where we consider the fact that hundreds of shameless listeners yeah, well, exactly <laughs> I do I talking about. I do appreciate that point, but I didn't understand <laughs> it. So, yes, parts of what you said last week ring true. It's just that Ebony <laughs> explained it in a much more palatable way for me. Before we get into the first segment, I just want to share with the listeners that that feeling of looking out the car window as like your mum and oh. dad drives home from grandma's house or something and pretending you're in a music video is just so true for me. I remember driving home from Christmas one year and I was listening to my iPod Nano playing Leona Lewis Bleeding Love. Nice. And I was convinced, like I played it the whole way home and I was just imagining myself in this music video that was very dramatic. And yeah, I should have been in a music video for that. I would have it down pat. I think that that is a far more universal example, to be honest. That's the one we should have led with. <laughs> the, the feeling of listening to a really emotive song, looking out the window and thinking that you're in that music video or you're in a scene of a movie is <laughs> so universal and so fucking embarrassing. Onwards, though, Mish, let's talk about Lockie Gilbert, of course, and the concept of liking other girls' photos. Exactly right. So if you didn't see it, Pedestrian ran an article this week with an awesome headline that really sums it up perfectly that read, Angie Kent obliterates Lockie Gilbert on Instagram for double tapping a bunch of bikini clad Picks. Now, a bit of background to that background. This all came about because of the So Dramatic podcast, which is a fantastic independent podcast run by Megan Pistetto. She is just killing it. So, So Dramatic shared screenshots of Lockie Gilbert, this year's Bachelor, liking posts from Love Island contestants in particular. So, Jessie Winter, I don't know if you remember her from Love Island last year, Zara, but she Mm. was blonde, very, very beautiful girl, was sharing bikini-clad photos. And interestingly, Lockie Gilbert was liking those photos in April despite the fact that filming for The Bachelor began in early March. And you might be sitting here or standing or wherever you might be consuming this podcast (laughs) thinking, well, what's the problem with that? And that is a very legitimate question. (laughs) Angie Kent, who was obviously part of this pedestrian headline, did comment on the So Dramatic Instagram post where they had screenshot a lot of these likes. And she said, I find it super disrespectful when dudes who have girlfriends go on cute little liking sprees of babes in bathers or lingerie. I mean, sure, have a good old look and appreciate the magic that is the female. You're only human. But unless homegirl is your girlfriend or your best friend, how about you don't go and double tap that? It's not that hard. Imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Their big male egos would throw toys so far out of their prams we'd never hear the goddamn end of it. I tell you what, the minute Angie Kent broke up with Carlin, she started spitting some pretty good fire on social media. I think she's just sort of like pushing back against the bullshit kind of nature of the franchise, all the bullshit elements of the franchise, and I love it. This was, though, this was the story I didn't want to see, Mish, because Mm. I know, and we've spoken multiple times on this podcast about how Lockie Gilbert's reputation as a bit of a, um, fuck, what are we even going to call it? What's the, what's the... uh, It's it's a bit... 
Oh, look, it's beyond murky at this point. I think yeah. Lockie Gilbert's reputation is about as flimsy as <laughs> it's about as flimsy as those um inflatable things outside car <laughs> sale places. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because Michelle understands what I'm talking about because I just did the action, but nobody else can see me. <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm the, talking like, about. The kind of like blown up weird limmy things the limmy outside things. of car dealerships. The inflatable limmy the, things that are outside that car flail, dealerships. That flail in the wind. That's Lockie Gilbert's reputation <laughs> right now. And I didn't want to see it, just going back to my original point, because I, I I want to know that he's in love and in a happy, stable relationship right now because that's what I like to see from the show. But it did kind of remind me and it harped back to that story that came out just as The Bachelor started airing that he was caught in the background of an Instagram live of Married at First Sight star Alex Markovich during lockdown as well. So a lot was happening mm. during lockdown. I know he came out at the time and said, you know, I didn't know if filming was ever going to, you know, begin again. But the other thing we're learning as the show progresses, Mish, is that he was talking to all of The Bachelor girls on the phone a lot. Mm-hmm. There Every are only day. so many hours in the day and every single girl <laughs> on The Bachelor right now has said that they had hours-long conversations with him daily on the phone. I'm genuinely, like, I think the saying shouldn't be you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce. It should now be you have as many hours in the day as Lockie Gilbert during lockdown. <laughs> you know how we posted something on our Instagram this week about, like, the amount of time we all spend on our phones and, the, like, when iPhone tells you that horrifying statistic at the end of every week, how many hours you've spent on average every single day. Lockie Gilbert must be really pushing the 20-hour mark based on how much he's messaging other girls. He must not sleep. Anyway, we've gone so far off tangent, it's not even funny. Let's get back to the liking thing, please. Back onto the liking thing, but before I get there, another tangent. Are we really surprised? We can't be surprised because he did allegedly screw over friend of the show Brooke Jowett to even get on this bloody franchise. So I'm not surprised by any of this. I'm just disappointed in old mate Lockie. But back to the liking scandal on Instagram. I'm going to be a bit self-aware here and put my hand up and acknowledge that sometimes on this podcast, the more mature aged shameless listeners find our conversations quite immature and quite (laughs) reminiscent of their 20s. Now, yes, I understand this all sounds very immature, But let me explain that I think there is a difference between liking Jesse from Love Island's photos in a bikini to liking Candace Swanepoel or Adriana Lima or Miranda Kerr's bikini-clad photos on Instagram. Someone who is local and someone who is also a reality star from Australia will probably see that Lockie Gilbert has been liking their photos. And that is a certain level of proximity and intimacy that I'm just not comfortable with. I do agree with you. And I agree with you on the point that you kind of have to preface a point like this one by acknowledging the potential kind of elements of immaturity about the conversation. But I also think that it's kind of an important conversation to have here because this is one of the most common conversations I would have with my friends. Like, Mm. are you allowed to get angry at your partner or the person you're seeing for liking photos of, you know, the type of person they might be sexually interested in? Mm. I do think it speaks to respect. I do think it speaks to respect. And I think that the question we need to ask the people that do this is what is your intent when you are liking these photos? Like, what Mm. are you actually hoping to get out of this exchange? I think with the women in question in this example with Lockie Gilbert, there's a bit of fishing going on. Like he is trying to be noticed because he's really well known in Australia. They're reality stars. And I do think often in those scenarios, 
what they're trying to do generally is lead to a conversation that's happening in DMs. Yes. Like I think that you fish to get that happening. On a greater scale though, like when you're talking about the Victoria's Secret models or whoever, I do still kind of think it speaks to respect in a sense of like what's the point of liking these photos? Like what is the point of actually double tapping and liking? Because Adriana Lima is not noticing little Johnny from, you know, the suburbs of Melbourne liking her photo. He's not being noticed. So what are you trying to prove or convey? I really am interested in what people are trying to achieve here beyond potentially making a partner insecure because they may not look like the person that, you know, is coming up on their partner's Instagram feed. That's totally fair. I think the main thing for me is access, right? Like Lockie Gilbert's access to a local reality star is far greater than an international star. So maybe if I was Lockie Gilbert's partner, I wouldn't be threatened because it's kind of like, yeah, good luck getting Candace Swanepoel, mate. Like, I wish you the best of luck. But I do agree with you. I think it sends a clear message. I am not stupid enough to ever imply that my male partner shouldn't look at other women that he finds attractive or that he should only look at me for the rest of his yeah, life yeah. and only find, like, sexual interest in me. But you're right. It sends a message and it kind of waves a little flag in the air. As soon as you like that photo, it's waving a flag to going, hey, I think you're hot or I'm interested to some degree. What degree that is isn't quite clear. It's like I endorse this sentiment, this product, (laughs) this message. I endorse everything that's going on here. And I think that can't not make you feel insecure if you're of the partner Mm. of someone doing that. So if I was the person that ended up with Lockie Gilbert, which is likely cough, cough, Irina, I'd be asking some questions, Mish. I can't tell you how much it pains me to know that you have almost definitely picked the winner correctly again. Every season, I'm like, this time I've got it. This time it's definitely Bella. The Oracle has gotten it wrong. And yet the season is continuing on. I see that Bella is getting the villain edit. And I do not think she goes on to win anymore. And it kills me inside that you're going to beat me for like, what? what is it? It would be the fifth season in a row that you've gotten this right over me. But, but it's, it's always important to keep pushing and keep trying, you know? <laughs> Fuck you. (laughs) Coming up after the break, JK Rowling's books are pulled from shelves. Cardi B files for divorce and Emrata writes a viral essay. But first a word from today's sponsor. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity and pop culture news cycle. Mish, what's your rough and tumble today? Ah, my first story. Cardi B files for divorce from offset after cheating claims. That is from Perth Now. For those who missed it, Cardi B reportedly filed papers in the Superior Court in the US state of Georgia this week, Zara. Are we surprised? No, we're not surprised. I think this has to be one of the most on-again, off-again celebrity relationships of all time. And I also wouldn't be surprised if these divorce papers are thrown out next week and they're back on again. Yeah, that's also a very good point. For those who are thinking right now that Cardi B and Offset and cheating rumours do ring a bell, they first publicly split in 2018 when separate cheating rumors first emerged and Mm. Offset made like a number of very public gestures to get Cardi B back. I couldn't work out at the time if it was a publicity stunt, if she genuinely didn't know. But there was one, I remember one example where he crashed one of her sets, Mish, in LA Mm. along with a huge take me back Cardi sign made out of white and red roses. I mean, if we're talking about little flags, little little tinsy red flags, (laughs) surely, surely this is up there. He did give an explanation for this at the time. He did tweet 
an explanation out because a lot of people said it was a publicity stunt, but he said, no, it wasn't. Quote, all of my wrongs have been made public. I figure it's only right that my apologies are made public too. Oh, yeah. Somehow I don't feel like it's as easy to apologize publicly for cheating again years after the fact. Yeah, and they do have a two-year-old child together. So I feel like once there are kids in the mix and it's happening again, file those divorce papers, get out of their Cardi. Cardi B could do so much better. On to my second story. Family of Carol Baskin's missing ex-husband airs ad during her Dancing with the Stars debut. That is from news.com.au. Before we get into the ad, Carol Baskin might be the most improved dancer on this season given her first performance wasn't the best. I actually haven't even seen. Have you been YouTubing Carol Baskin clips on Dancing with the Stars? She is like me. It, I imagine that's how I would look if I went on Dancing with the Stars. I feel like paralytic fear at the prospect of dancing in front of people. Like the thought of ever doing a first dance for a wedding with oh, Mitch, yeah. I'm, no, I'm not doing that. Fucked. Like, no. That's no. actually a conversation we've never <laughs> properly had on the podcast. One of my greatest fears and one of the only reasons against ever having a wedding is when you have to come into the big reception area and everyone's standing and clapping and you've kind of got to dance in with your partner. It's not the first no, dance that stresses it. me out. It's the dance in to the reception. Anyway, this is a big tangent really, really fast. Back to Carol Baskin. I don't know how an accused murderer can sort of like appear like satire in the same way yeah. as this story is playing out. Do you know what I mean? But she's she's not really an accused murderer though because it's not like she has formal charges against her or anything. I think it's all a bit – it's rumours and it's hearsay and yes – the rumours are very compelling and I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't think the rumours are true because part of me really truly does. However, we need to kind of also at the same time as taking them seriously, kind of take them with a grain of salt because she's never been charged. Yeah, and so the reason that this story has come back into the newsfeed again is because, as we said, Carol Baskin is on the US version of Dancing with the Stars and the family of her missing ex-husband did pay for an ad spot in the middle of the show so that they could make a point and they announced a US $100,000 reward for any information. Talk about pointed. I literally just realised some people might be listening along going, you guys have not given any fucking context onto who the hell Carol Baskin is. Yeah, that was our bad. Sorry, I got too worked up with um, <laughs> wedding dances to really do my job. <laughs> our apologies. Now, the ad, which did include Don Lewis's children, so his three daughters, Gail, Linda and Donna, also featured his former assistant, Anne McQueen, and Zara, the family lawyer. This was what was said. In the ad, Don Lewis mysteriously disappeared in 1997. His family deserves answers. They deserve justice. Do you know who did this or if Carol Baskin was involved? Then, of course, yes, they offered the $100,000 reward for whoever comes forward, but not the best way to debut on <laughs> reality television. <laughs> I mean, it draws publicity, so... Sure. I mean, Carol Baskin did come out and say she's happy for the added publicity and that hopefully they do find where Don Lewis is. So fingers crossed for all involved. Our third story, an Aussie bookshop will no longer stock books by JK Rowling after her continued transphobia. That is from Pedestrian TV. Yeah, so a really quick bit of context here. As you know, we've touched on JK Rowling's transphobic comments in the past. She's in the news again this week because it was announced that she had written a new crime novel where the, the main character 
was a man who dresses up as a woman to kill people. People have made the connection that a lot of her transphobic comments, arguing that women won't be safe if everybody can kind of change their sex or their gender, could be tied back to this novel and this original idea. Mish, as you just said in that headline, an Aussie bookshop has responded to this by pulling Harry Potter off the shelves. Yeah, absolutely. So Rebel Books and Games owner Nat Ladder did write on Facebook, we are always trying to make Rebel a safer space for our community. And part of that is trying not to put books by transphobes on the shelves when we know about them. There are more worthy books to be put on the shelf, books that don't harm communities and won't make us sad to unpack them. I mean, it's a privately owned business. Nat Ladder has every right to do that. I find this incredibly interesting because for those who were defending JK Rowling for so long, I really don't think you can do that anymore. I don't think you can defend her and say she is not phobic of transgender people when she is now writing a book that I would say deliberately incites fear, deliberately incites fear in the hearts and minds of its readers that men who choose to dress or identify as women are dangerous and a threat to our safety. It does open a really interesting conversation, Mish, about what we do with the Harry Potter stories and I guess for for people everywhere who found a lot of comfort and solace in the Harry Potter series, what they do with the knowledge that the person who wrote those stories now wants to essentially deny the existence of, of trans people everywhere. And I found a really interesting story on Variety from trans writer Nicole Main. And she wrote this really beautiful passage about why she still will enjoy the Harry Potter books regardless of what JK has done and she wrote in the piece Rowling's comments speak against the very message of her books about being stronger together about inclusion about self-discovery bravery and triumph over adversity it's contradictory to the world that she created but I'm still a fan and I'll tell you why because these books and their messages still exist and whatever views Rowling personally has can't take that away from us nobody can take that away from us and that world really belongs to the fans now nobody can change if these helped you come out that belongs to you and I did love this perspective a little bit Mish because I I do think if someone's listening to this and really did find comfort and solace in those Harry Potter books, I think in some cases stories are what you make of them and stories do Mm. belong to you once you consume them. And if they did make you and have made you a better, more creative, more imaginative person, then I think that you can hold on to that. That story is yours. Yeah, I agree. I think, first of all, this is such a complicated and messy topic and it's one that I don't have a clear-cut opinion on but I do genuinely agree with what you just read out and what you said that I think particularly for any victims of JK Rowling's message for any people who are transgender if they enjoy Harry Potter why should they on top of feeling aggrieved and upset by what JK Rowling says also take away something from their lives that gives them joy. If it brings you joy and it brings you happiness to read the Harry Potter books, then don't deprive yourself of that. I think you're entitled to that, particularly if her message now frustrates you. Like you shouldn't have to then take away something else in your life that you genuinely love. I think the message from here should be to people who want to buy this book and want to support J.K. Rowling. I mean, she has written it. It's important to say she's written this under her crime novel pseudonym, which is Robert Galbraith. So if anyone sees that, that's what's going on here. But I think it's important for us, people who are cisgendered, to have a conversation. If you want to buy this book and read it and financially support J.K. Rowling, why? And... I personally won't be reading it and I feel like if I was going to read it, I'd probably try and loan it from a library before I 
I don't know, fill her already quite heavy pockets. Yeah, and I mean, I guess if you have to buy it for some unknown reason and you have to spend the money to to read the book, then make a donation to a charity that is actually going to do some good work and undo a lot of the harm that she has done. But fuck, it's disappointing how quickly she's trashed her legacy. Like, it is just, it seems like one of the most avoidable controversies that she's wrapped herself up in. She really didn't have to do this harm and she continues to do it and she continues to be stubborn in promulgating her beliefs. So it's just a really disappointing story all round. My fourth story, TikTok influencer Addison Rae will star in Miramax's gender-swapped She's All That remake. That is from The Verge. Really quick one, Zara. Addison Rae is the second most popular TikTok user in the world after Charlie D'Amelio. And I find this interesting because I feel like for so long, TikTok stars had huge influence and huge power, but probably weren't reaping the financial reward or the monetary reward of that power. That has changed very, very quickly in 2020. Not only has Addison Rae launched her beauty brand, Item Beauty, which is selling out massively and getting rave reviews, particularly for the mascara that she's made, but also she is now channeling this power into an acting career and a pretty legitimate one at that. Well, that's the thing that gets me. This isn't just any old movie. I mean, Mark Waters, who directed Mean Girls and produced 500 Days of Summer, is leading the team on this movie. So it's a pretty legit thing. I mean, it just speaks to the changing nature of celebrity, doesn't it? I think a lot of people would kind of giggle and think that TikTok stars are just dancing on the internet and in a way they kind of are but they're doing it in a way that's garnering such a following that they are incredibly influential and it might pull a huge audience to this movie it likely will random segue before we move on her best friendship with Kourtney Kardashian is like the least likely friendship of the year but I'm all here for all the pap shots that keep coming out (laughs) yeah I feel like there's a conversation to be had not now but eventually in huge age gaps between friendships but that's for another (laughs) time yeah my fifth and final story for today's quick and dirty mcdonald's travis scott meal proves to be too popular that is from the australian financial review zara travis scott is the king of major celebrity endorsements i actually never would have picked it but maybe i'm just like this is just not my realm the travis scott (laughs) realm is not one i'm in The Travis Scott meal at McDonald's, I think it's their first celebrity burger or first celebrity kind of meal collab in 30 years, Michelle, and Mm. it is selling out stores everywhere. A lot of these stores are low on ingredients. For those who want to know what's in the burger, the collab meal features a quarter pounder with cheese, bacon and lettuce, a medium order of fries with barbecue sauce and a Sprite. My favorite part about this story is McDonald's trying to be cool in their statement to USA Today when they were asked about the collab. (laughs) McDonald's said, and this is just going to ride us out on this quick and dirty because I actually feel so sick reading this out that I can't even give comment. In fact, it's been so lit, some of our restaurants have temporarily sold out of some of the ingredients in the meal. That comms person from McDonald's needs to be fired. <laughs> oh, I think that's all for today's Quick and Dirty. I think we can leave it there. <laughs> Three, two, one. Zara is a beach hero. It was 
arguably the most talked about essay of the last few months. Model Emily Ratajkowski penned a piece for The Cut, aptly titled Buying Myself Back. It trended on Twitter and her own tweet about the piece was liked nearly 30,000 times. So what was it all about? Well, Ratajkowski wrote beautifully and harrowingly about her years-long struggle against men who own images of her. Paparazzi, artists and photographers who have all abused their power and profited off her body. Mish, we will unpack more of what she wrote about in a little bit, but I guess the first thing I want to know is why you think it was so widely shared. To be blunt, I think, and this is a reflection on us, not a reflection on Emily Ratajkowski, I think to some degree people were legitimately surprised to see a woman who is so incredibly beautiful, so conventionally attractive, to also be such a brilliant writer. Like at face value, this is an exceptionally written piece. She is a very vivid storyteller and that is apparent from the absolute get-go of this story it's beautifully crafted so I think that took a lot of people by surprise and a lot of people shared it because they thought wow I probably undersold this woman and underestimated her for a long time why do you think yeah I really have to agree with you I think first and foremost it was the element of surprise which absolutely sucks and is a reflection of us but I did see some commentary on Twitter with people turning around being like well did she actually write this or how much of these are her own words but Emily Ratajkowski is writing a book of essays at the moment about being a victim of her own body. And I think if I had have read that, the, the idea of what she's writing a book about before I had read this piece, I shudder to think of how dismissive I probably would have been. Not even just dismissive, annoyed. I would have been annoyed, annoyed to hear that. Yeah. But I think every woman listening to this would probably agree to some extent. Yeah. So for those who haven't read the story, read it first and foremost. But it does centre on how so many men own and distribute photos of her, that as a model, she very rarely has ownership over her own body. She used examples like being sued by paparazzi for posting on Instagram a paparazzi photo of herself, despite the fact she is consistently stalked by paparazzi, consistently abused by paparazzi, that they are able to sue her when she uploads a photo of herself. She also Mm -hmm. wrote about the artist Richard Prince, who repurposed some of her Instagram photos, literally just screenshots of her Instagram photos and sold them as art for $80,000 for upwards of $80,000. And then she told the most harrowing story of all, Mish, one about her time working with the photographer Jonathan Leader when she was about 20 years old. And she wrote about being plied with wine, sexually assaulted, and how she posed naked for him in what was a pretty huge abuse of power. He held on to those photos. They were Polaroids for years until she kind of was far more famous than she was when she took the photos and he sold them in a book titled Emily Ratajkowski. She was unable to stop him making any money off the photos. She did not consent to them being used outside of their original purpose and he did many, many print runs. So as you can tell, the thread here again is all of these men owning photos of her where she has no agency in the scenario. Yeah, before we get to Jonathan Leader and really tease out that I do want to quickly touch on the paparazzo that you spoke about at the top of that spiel Zara so the opening of this essay did explore how Emily's being sued for $150,000 for sharing one paparazzo photo 
on one Instagram story, not even her feed, a 15 second Instagram story that was up for 24 hours and she's being sued 150 grand for it. I want to read out a passage that really stood out to me about this. Since 2013, when I appeared in a viral music video, paparazzi have lurked outside my front door. I've become accustomed to large men appearing suddenly between cars or jumping out from behind corners with glassy black holes where their faces should be. I posted the photograph of me using the bouquet as a shield on my Instagram because I liked what it said about my relationship with the paparazzi. And now I was being sued for it. I've become more familiar with seeing myself through the paparazzi's lenses than I am with looking at myself in the mirror. And I have learned that my image, my reflection is not my own. I know this isn't the entire point of the piece, but I do just want to share one realization I had. It wasn't even when I read this story. It was when I was thinking about this story that night in bed. The paparazzi is the living embodiment of the male gaze. Like they are the tangible, touchable manifestation of patriarchy and the male gaze. Like how many paparazzos are women? They're all men. From my experience anyway, not saying I've been paparazzi, not saying I've been papped, I'm saying like when you see footage <laughs> yeah. of paparazzi, when you see celebrities being followed, it's always men. And then the more fucked up thing about that is it's always men following and chasing women. And then the layer of policing women's bodies. So often it's taking photos of women in bikinis or photos of women on dates, policing what clothing they're wearing. It never really stood out to me or crystallized in my mind so clearly before I had read this piece that the paparazzi is the embodiment of the male gaze. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that line you read out from her was one of the most powerful lines, I think, when she kind of came to the realization that the images staring back at her weren't hers. I also think the reason that this story in particular was so powerful and one of the reasons that it was so widely shared is because of how much internalised misogyny permeates the public discourse when it comes to Emrata and her body, like as if they're two separate entities. There's Emrata and then there's like Emrata's body and I have definitely played into that too and I think what really hit that point home was the line that she wrote when she was explaining how the team at New York Magazine had reached out to Jonathan Leader for comment and she wrote... When the fact checker I worked with on this story reached out to Jonathan about what happened that night after the shoot, he said my allegations were too tawdry and childish to respond to. He added, you do know who we are talking about, right? This is the girl that was naked in Treats magazine and bounced around naked in the Robin Thicke video at that time. You really want someone to believe she was the victim. And Mish, when I was on Twitter reading a lot of the commentary about this story, someone pointed to a paragraph from Gia Tolentino in The New Yorker back in 2018, I think it was. And she wrote at the time, if you have ever experienced sexual assault or harassment, you know that one of the cruelest things about these acts is the way they entangle and attempt to contaminate all of the best things about you. If you're sweet and friendly, you'll think that it's your fault for accommodating the situation. If you're tough, well, you might as well decide that it's no big deal. If you're a gentle person, then he knew you were weak. If you're talented, he thought of you as an equal. If you're ambitious, you wanted it. If you're savvy, you knew it was coming. If you're affectionate, you seemed like you were asking for it all along. If you make dirty jokes or have a good time at parties, then why get moralistic? If you're smart, there's got to be some way to rationalize this. I loved being reminded of this paragraph because I think it speaks so much to the resentment we hold towards women with bodies like Emrata and it speaks so much to why, had she told this story in a different way a long time ago, people might not have believed her. Yeah, I don't think they would have, which is such a sad indictment on our attitudes towards women, particularly women who own their sexuality or really love expressing that side of their personality. I do want to say, like, it's such a simple point, but God, Jonathan Leader is such a gross 
pig-like misogynist. Fucked up. So fucked up. So he deleted his Instagram after this story came out because obviously people were irate after reading that he had allegedly sexually assaulted M. Radikowski at his home after he had plied her with so much alcohol. But the fact that he didn't then go away, it wasn't like he deleted his Instagram and disappeared from the internet for a bit. He deleted his Instagram and then took to the website where he is still selling photo books of M. Radikowski against her permission and wrote that she simply put this piece out into the world as part of her, and I quote, never ending search for press and publicity. It just says so much about a person, I think, to receive these allegations and not even take a day, not take a day to be like, did I do something wrong? Like not take a hot minute to think, could I possibly be at fault for any aspect of what happened between us? But to immediately say, basically, she's a publicity whore, says so much about Jonathan Leader and how he thinks about women. Oh my God, 100%. And God, I mean, I could spend hours talking about Jonathan Leader and how disgusting he was coming across in this story. But the other thing that really rang true for me or really kind of made me think was this idea that our image and our perception of M. Rada was crafted on decisions that she made when she was so much younger and at the mercy of so many powerful men, arguably. The fact that our perception of M. Rada was probably subconsciously crafted by seeing images like the ones Jonathan Leader took and judging her for that because of internalized misogyny just blows my mind and and makes me feel deeply embarrassed and ashamed of maybe some of the thoughts and feelings I've had in the past. And it's really interesting because even M. Rada speaks to how deep internalized misogyny is when she was interviewed earlier this year for GQ. And she said, I realized I had made assumptions about Demi Moore. I definitely wrote her off a little bit as an actress because she was just so sexy because she had that body. And I'm M. Rada. So that's seriously ironic. It just goes to show how deep internalized misogyny is. Mm, I really loved one tweet that I read from Jordan Crocciola. She wrote, there's a Megan Fox circa 2009 way people react to Emily Ratajkowski that has a very, we love women except this mm-hmm. kind of woman who is probably a bimbo because of the specific kind of hot she is. Despite the fact that she, like Fox, has always publicly processed her image eloquently. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think so much of the way that we talk about and process Emily Ratajkowski's career is through a lens of internalized misogyny. It actually makes me think back to a 2018 episode you and I did of this podcast, Zara, where we discussed M. Ratajkowski's brand of feminism and we kind of tossed around the conflicting feelings we had when we thought about her stance on feminism, despite the fact that she is a main beneficiary of patriarchy. And I think that was an assumption we made in 2018 that we actually got wrong. The whole point of that was saying, can you be a key beneficiary of patriarchy and also be a vocal proponent of feminism? But we didn't really grapple with the fact that M. Radikowski is not the key beneficiary of her own body. The men around her are the key beneficiaries of her body. And they have stolen photos of her body and repurposed them and made profit from them without giving Emily Ratajkowski a cent of the proceeds. And I think the funny thing about that segment, two years on, I think I've matured and grown as a feminist and a woman to realise that true feminism is Emily Ratajkowski monetizing her body and her appearance in whatever fucking way she sees fit. She is allowed to do whatever she wants with her body and I don't care now that I've finally been able to grapple with my own internalised misogyny. What's important is that there aren't men blocking the gates to all the money and pocketing profit from her as she goes. 
Yeah, it's a really, really complicated one. And it's not to say, I do think there is still so much to unpack about how some people like Emrata argue that any form of nakedness is empowering and in the name of feminism. Like, I still think that's an important conversation to be had, but I do want to park that today because I think it's one we've had a lot. When you say before that one thing that we've promulgated on this podcast is the idea that Emrata was the beneficiary of patriarchy in the same sentence that she was kind of supporting the concept of feminism is really interesting because I do think we absolutely need to unpack in a way more thoughtful way what being a beneficiary actually is. Like I think Mm. we took a really stereotypical stance on what being a beneficiary is and that was maybe mainstream financial success in quotation marks. But it's ironic to me that we always ask people about success on this podcast because we know that success is far more internal than external. And I think success to her in this case is not about that mainstream success. It is not about that money. It is having power over her own body. And that is the one thing that time and time again, she hasn't seemed to be able to have. Yeah, and that she's been stripped of. I really loved this tweet from Daisy Buchanan. She wrote, the Emily Ratajkowski piece is truly courageous. It's brought home to me how wrongly dismissive I've sometimes felt about her and other women who appear to benefit from the privilege of staggering beauty. I shouldn't have needed reminding that all bodies can be hard to live in. And I think that's true, particularly when you're a woman I think that being the beneficiary of patriarchy has also victimized Emily Ratajkowski at times it has meant that people have discounted her discredited her slut shamed her profited from her I think it is so much more complicated than just a binary of being a victim or a beneficiary and I think looking back at that segment there's something we probably glossed over that we didn't think deeply enough about yeah absolutely and I think no one's sitting here arguing that Emily Ratajkowski has the hardest life in the world because she's one of the most beautiful women in the world. I think it would be very easy for people to walk away again with a very binary idea of what we're trying to say. I think it's just this idea that things are always more complicated and more layered behind the scenes than we ever often give them credit for. I wanted to finish, Mish, with a quote from her, the last line from the piece, which I thought was very beautiful. She wrote, I will remain as the real Emily, the Emily who owns the high art Emily and the one who wrote this essay too. She will continue to carve out control wherever she She can find it. And I just bloody love that she found some control in this scenario. I love it so much. I think that is all we have time for. Guys, thank you so much, not just for listening to this episode, but for buying our book. It is such a huge display of support that we have had from you guys that you want to support, not just the written word, which is really important to us as writers, but also us as young people in the media. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has gone out and bought the space between so far. Yeah, as Mish said, it's been really, really warming to see that over the past couple of weeks. So thank you so much again. There wouldn't be enough words for us to thank you. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you do want to support the show, please click follow on Spotify or follow us on Instagram. We are at Shameless podcast and we will be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If 
that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.